0: majesty, key word in Hebrews. Let's turn to Hebrews, incidentally, chapter 9. Bob Friedrich is still with us. You're still with us, Bob. Wow. Sandy begged you to stay, right? (laughs) Bob's one of those guys when people stand up in their self-importance and say, I'd like to thank all the little people. They don't mean Bob. He's finally gotten over that depression he had as a child when he couldn't be cast for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. He was very <laughs> depressed about that. Uh, <clears throat> Before I get started, Lou the True Jew, I have to say that's the coolest shirt I've ever seen in my life ever. Look at that shirt. Don't you don't have to model it, but I take a large. If you're ever if you ever have too many of them. <laughs> Heavenly blue. Okay, now that we've gotten the important things out of the way, this is Hebrews 20.20, it's increment 296, and I'm going to speak about the superiority today, the superiority of the blood of Jesus, what I call the blood groove and the blood trail, both of which can be identified in the scriptures in a kind of an analogy. And I've said before that my exegesis of Hebrews is sort of like sedation dentistry or sleep dentistry. You don't know what's happening. And I don't always identify specific verses that are being exegeted, and they are being exegeted, but you don't even know it. And so when you're done, when we're done with Hebrews, all the work will be done. And you'll have the word of God in your mouth. Speaking of the word of God... I was counseled once by Colonel Theme to study and teach. He said it three times, study and teach, study and teach, study and teach. I finally realized, and I have to amend that a little bit, what that means. It means come to the end of yourself and communicate what's left. <laughs> That's what it means. Come to the end of yourself and communicate what is left after yourself is gone, and if you have in you the word, and the word is in your heart, then it will be in your mouth. What you communicate will be the word, and if Christ is in you, what you communicate will be Christ, and my prayer is that he will magnify, God will magnify his son, Jesus Christ, in my body, which I hope is more and more empty of self. The supreme significance of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God is highlighted in John's Gospel. Starts off with John 129 and then 136, where he is explicitly announced to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by the forerunner John the Baptizer. And then the most dramatic depiction of him, and we will be dealing with this Wednesday when I teach on the death certificate of Jesus Christ, in John 19:34 to 36 where he is revealed in fact Christ crucified as the lamb of God and his announcement it is finished is the announcement that in fact the sin of the world has been taken away in Revelation the lamb is mentioned as we've seen many times especially in our study of Revelation it's mentioned 28 times and in Romans, in Romans 8, 31 to 32, though the word lamb is not used, the lamb of God is right at the literally and literarily the center of Romans, the Romans epistle, where it says that God is for us and that he has given his son over on behalf of us all. And so how will he not freely give us all things? That goes on into Romans 8:34 which to me is the spiritual track that runs into Hebrews. He is risen from the dead, so significant that 1 Timothy 3.16, and this is an argument that I may be making, 3.16, there are six declarations of the godly mystery of God, the mystery of godliness, six declarations. Every one of them is expressing Jesus' resurrection from the dead from six different angles. From ours as witnesses, from the angels, from the world, from God's angle, all of it, all six are a declaration, a sixfold declaration of one thing the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so, Romans, right at the heart and center, the Lamb, where it is literally and literarily central as well as thematic. We're coming up to Hebrews 9. 11 to 14, a central paragraph, which is, again, literally and literally the center, the dead center, or I call it the living center, of Hebrews. And the depiction there is of Jesus, the Lamb of God. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish? though no, no mention, again, of lamb there, but without blemish means the Lamb of God. Purify your conscience to serve the living God. All of Hebrews has a practical aim. That practical aim is to enable you and I, the readers and hearers of Hebrews, to serve the living God, to enable us to serve him effectively as priests and maybe even be part of the divine solution to the problem of evil in our own generation and the pivot for the turning of God by God of history from a decline to a progressive incline and to redeeming time. So, the superiority demonstrated by the figure speech called oxasis of God's Son over angels has been revealed in Hebrews over Moses. Why Moses after the angels? Because at the time, Jews were regarding Moses as superior to angels. So, Jesus' superiority over angels. Even more so is demonstrated his superiority over Moses. His superiority to Aaron, the archpriest, is also demonstrated. The superiority of the new covenant which, of which Jesus is the mediator and guarantor over the old covenant of which Moses was an intermediary and of which Aaron and his sons were archpriests, Jesus' superiority over them. Now we're concerned with the superiority of the blood of Jesus, the Messiah, which gives effect to the new, the better, the everlasting covenant over the blood of sacrificial animals by which the old covenant was inaugurated. The old covenant, too, was inaugurated by blood, but the new covenant, the inauguration by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so it's continually given effect, an effect which was... In the Old Covenant, the blood of animals was an effect which was merely external, earthly, ceremonial, but did not get to that interior part of man which is connected to the heavenly circle of being. That part of man which is connected to the heavenly circle of being is the conscience. And we're going to see this develop as a doctrine. And so that's the inmost interiority of man's consciousness called the conscience. We're going to hit that again today. The superiority of the blood of Messiah, the blood of God's Lamb, which gave everlasting effect to the new covenant, is a theme that exists in Hebrews along with the central theme of the Lamb of God, specifically of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now, the first thing you've heard me mention about is the blood groove. The blood groove is something that is built into blades, whether they're knives or the katana sword of the samurai or some of the swords and short and long swords, you see a groove running almost the full length of the blade. It's called a blood groove, and that's because of the myth that it was for the blood to run after a person is dispatched with the sword. That's not what it's there for. The groove is in the sword or the blade in order to give it a, more of a lightness, more of an easy handling, more of an, make it more of an agile blade, more of a rigid blade, more of a usable blade. But I'm using that term blood groove to show that the sword of the word, which is what the Bible is called, the word is like a sword, The sword of the spirit has along almost its full length a blood groove, meaning that there is a theme of blood almost all the way through the word of God, which is likened to a sword. So you picture the sword of the word and along its length, almost its full length, is the blood groove. And so what we're going to do now is a verse-by-verse. This is strange to you, I know. It's a verse-by-verse study of Hebrews 9, which we've already looked at in some measure. Notice verse 1 and following. This is my translation. And we're going to see the blood groove run through here. We're also going to see a blood trail. Hebrews is like the Holy Spirit leading us on a blood trail to the Holy of Holies, Because it's into the Holy of Holies that we enter as priests with a purified conscience. And it's only there that we serve the living God effectively as priests. The question arises, is the new covenant community at our present time serving God effectively, serving the living God effectively so that there is impact on the world and upon world occurrence and upon people and upon the souls of people? That's the question. Hebrews 9 1. Now, indeed, the first, meaning the first covenant, had associated with it regulations for service. That's what we call the Levitical cultus, and a cosmic sanctuary. That means a tent of this earthly circle of being. There is the exterior, and there's the earthly. There's the interior and the heavenly. In Hebrews, there's a connection not of heaven with the above, but heaven with the internal. The interior, the heavenly and the interior are likened as the earthly and the exterior are likened in Hebrews. We'll be following that groove in the word also. He said, A tent was furnished, the first compartment in order of approach, of which was called the holies or the holy place, in which was both the lampstand and the table of the presentation of loaves. We've seen this reflected in Jesus being the light of the world and his flesh being the bread that feeds the life of the world, the universal. So there's universal significance of Jesus popping everywhere, even in the type here. Behind the second curtain was a section called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which held the golden jar of manna, The rod of Aaron that sprouted, also a picture of resurrection. And the tablets of the covenant, a covenant broken by man but kept by God. Broken tablets and then the established new tablets. Verse 5, and above the ark, the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the place of expiation, about which things it is not necessary to speak of in detail right now. Now again... We're going to now approach this blood groove, as I put it, along with the whole length of the blade of the sword of the word. Later, the writer is going to say almost everything was purified by blood. We're even going to find out that the heavens had to be purified by blood. In Job 15.15, God does not even consider the heavens to be pure. So in Hebrews 9.23, the heavens needed to be purified purified with better sacrifices than animal sacrifices. And therefore, this is a wonderful way of pointing to the greater sacrifice of Christ and its universal significance. The first mention of blood is that of Abel, the murdered brother of Cain. The last mention of blood in Hebrews is also to the blood of Abel in Hebrews 12.24. It contrasts the blood of Abel, Abel with the sprinkled blood of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Both Abel and Jesus were offerers and victims. Abel offered the acceptable sacrifice from the flock, and then he was the victim of Cain's hatred and resentment. In Matthew 23, 35, Jesus connected the blood of Abel with the blood of Zechariah, all the martyrs. From A to Z, Abel to Zechariah. He connected Abel with Zechariah in Matthew twenty three, thirty-five. Zechariah was murdered between the altar and the sanctuary. So in an oblique way, this was also connecting Abel's blood and death with an altar. For he who made an offering of a lamb became a lamb of sorts in his death. As a martyr. So there's a lot that likens Abel's blood with Christ's blood, but of course, Jesus' blood speaks better things than that of Abel. People often think that Abel's blood required justice for a murder committed, but it's not that way. Abel's blood required mercy, mercy that God extended to Cain. Cain went out and built a city. Greater, then, is the mercy that God required through Jesus' blood, for it's by that blood that God shows mercy to all. Jesus also offered an acceptable sacrifice of infinitely greater magnitude and value. And his blood, as the Hebrews author put it in an understatement, speaks better things than that of Abel, meaning Abel's blood. Jesus was also delivered to death by those who were envious, which is filled with the ressentiment, Matthew 27:18, Mark 15:19, envious of him. Even Pilate saw that. He saw that they delivered him over to death because of envy. And those who delivered him to death and called for his crucifixion were following the way of Cain. They operated in ressentiment, leading to murderous intent, and that's where it always goes, murderous intent against the sinless Son of God. Of course, no man takes my life, Jesus says. I lay it down. And so that's the ultimate. No one takes the life of Jesus. He voluntarily, voluntarily laid it down and had the power, unlike Cain did and unlike Abel, to take that life back again in resurrection. And so his blood became evidence of a death like Abel's. There is one of the most brilliant analogies in all of scripture, in all of literature for that matter, coming up in Hebrews 9:15 and 16, where there is only there in all of the Bible an analogy of covenant and testament And the writer shows as a covenant requires blood to make it effective, a will and testament requires death to make it effective. The death of the testator is Jesus Christ. And we will, on this Wednesday, discuss the evidence of that death, which was when blood and water came out suddenly when Jesus' side was pierced between the ribs with a Roman spear, out came blood and water, that was John's depiction of the death certificate the proof or the evidence of the death of the testator and therefore the guarantee of the inheritance which is all things for all humanity courtesy of Jesus Christ but that's coming up I think you'll see in increment 297 this coming Wednesday I think you'll see that especially since I already recorded it now Jesus blood as we'll see was evidence of the death of the testator. It was and is the blood which gave effect to the new covenant. When Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, in Matthew 26, 28, which is being poured out for many, many meaning all, the blood, my blood of the new covenant means my blood that makes effective the new covenant. It becomes effective for the forgiveness of sins, Of many, which we know is all, it becomes effective ultimately so that all will know me from the least to the greatest, from the greatest to the least. All will know him in the saving way. And so Jesus actually proclaimed at the communion service his universally saving effectiveness and the effect of his blood or his death. Blood and death are equated not just in theological studies but in the Bible. For as blood was required to make an effective covenant, death is required to make a will and testament effective. The death of the testator, Jesus, and the blood of Jesus making the covenant effective is why I think that blood and death are dynamic equivalents in the scripture. If we had seen this right off, there may not have been so much controversy over the literal and figurative blood which was a kind of a ridiculous controversy that brought an undue division in the body of Christ years ago that even affected us for a while. And so it was and is the blood, Jesus' blood, which gave effect to the new covenant, including its promise that all will know God from the least to the greatest and that forgiveness of sins is effected for all humanity. His blood was the blood of the Lamb, in Revelation 7.14, as Revelation puts it. And in First 1 Peter 1.19, Peter calls the precious blood of Christ to be that like a lamb without defect or blemish. Sounds an awful lot like Hebrews 9.14. So, the blood groove goes all the way, almost all the way through the word. It goes almost all the way through the scriptures. Now, another Side of this analogy, the blood trail. We may also say that there is a blood trail on which the Holy Spirit leads us when He guides us into all the truth. The Holy Spirit guiding us into all the truth that's embodied in Jesus is like the Holy Spirit leading us on a blood trail to the Holy of Holies. In fact, In Hebrews 10.29, we see a, I always look for proximity of things or people or persons or concepts in the scripture. In Hebrews 10.29, the spirit of grace, that's the Holy Spirit, is said to be insulted precisely when the blood of the new covenant is regarded as common and not universally efficacious. When the church does not regard the value of the blood of Jesus Christ as being universally efficacious, the church is grieving the Holy Spirit, in fact, on the verge of outraging the Holy Spirit. So you can swing and sway and sing your worshipful songs to God and sound all worshipful and feel all good and yet be insulting the Holy Spirit who is not directing you in your worship and not directing you in your singing and not directing you in your service because it's impossible to serve the living God without having a conscience that discerns the value of the blood of Jesus Christ as being universally significant. That's how important this is. That's how important a commentary on Hebrews from a universalistic standpoint is. That's how important this is in our time. And so the Holy Spirit is constantly leading throughout the scriptures on a blood trail. The word blood now has come into a great pooling of blood. A great pooling of blood on the blood trail happens in Hebrews 9, right where we are. And it even goes into Hebrews 10. It literally fills the expositional section that we're involved with right now in Hebrews 9one one. Through 1018. In 1019, the next exhortation passage, the longest in all of the book of Hebrews, begins also with the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10:19. Having confidence by the blood of Jesus to enter into the holiest of all. Hebrews 10 again 19. And so we have in this passage where the blood is pooling, as it were, by our analogy. A reference to the, under this exposition, under the analogy to the Levitical cultist, which meant a lot of blood being offered. We have blood mentioned in Hebrews 9, 7. We just are about to read that. It's mentioned twice in Hebrews nine twelve, Again in 13, again in 14, again in 18, and 19, and 20. 22 it's used twice 25 it appears again 104 again in the big 104 of Hebrews exhortation resumes in 1019 with reference to the blood of Jesus because of which we have boldness to enter as priests into the heavenly sanctuary when we enter into the heavenly sanctuary there and there alone do we serve the living god there and there alone do we make intercession for all people in 1 Timothy 2.1, for those in authority and for all people. And there is where we actually affect world occurrence by our intercession and where Jesus Christ is glorified through our priesthood. Hebrews 9.6, these things being prepared just so into the first room of the tent, the priests keep entering all the time. And that indicates the repetition of the sacrifices. The very fact that they need to be repeated shows their inefficacy, their inability to purify and to truly purify the interior consciousness and therefore make it possible for people to truly serve the living God, to live in the newness of life and to serve in the newness of the spirit in Romans 6.4 and Romans 7.6. So the priests keep entering, kept entering all the time, performing their service. But into the second compartment, once a year. This is on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, nucleated in Leviticus 16. Only the archpriest goes. That's Leviticus 16, 17. The Hebrew is the Kohen HaGodel, the chief priest or the archpriest, the great archpriest. Never without blood. Here's where the blood is beginning to pool on our blood trail. Which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. When you're following a blood trail, say you've shot a deer and wounded the deer grievously, you can tell that you've wounded him grievously, and then you're getting closer to your prey when the blood begins to pool more and more, not when there's just a little on a leaf or a little on the path, but when it begins to pool, you know you're close to gaining your prey. I know this may not be a very pleasant analogy for you, but I don't care. So it says in verse 7, never without blood, he says, which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. This shows its insufficiency, not only the repetition of the sacrifice, but the fact that the priest has to make an offering for himself, unlike Jesus, who is sinless, who knew no sin, and because he knew no sin, he was the only one that God could make to be sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. He did not just suffer for the sins of the people, meaning Israel, but he endured the judgment for the sins of all people, of all times and places. And that, again, is his universal effect uh, and the superiority of the blood of Jesus Christ. So in verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit is making clear. And that's what the Holy Spirit does about everything. He makes everything clear. By this, the Holy Spirit is making clear that not yet disclosed is the road to the Holy of Holies. In other words, people can't see this road to the Holy of Holies and take it into the holiest place of all if they're still practicing the priestly actions or the sacrifices under the Old covenant and some were at that time this was written in the time the present time for the readers was a time in which the priests kept doing this it was redundant it was repetitive it was actually insulting to the spirit of grace because one archpriest the archpriest not according to the order of Aaron but the according to the order of Melchizedek had entered once not not once a year but once and for all not for the sins of ignorance, but all sins, whether committed in willful cognizance or ignorance. All the sins of all mankind, all the world, all places, in all times, past, present, and future, he paid for them all. He was judged for them all. The offerer and the lamb in one person. The offerer, the priest, and the lamb in one. The judge and the judged in one the Son of Man, to whom all judgment is entrusted, being the judged. All of this happened in this, the death of Christ. So by this, the Holy Spirit's making clear that not yet disclosed, not yet revealed, is the road to the Holy of Holies, while the first tent has standing. This is the reason why the tent, which had now been transferred to the stone temple in Jerusalem, had to be historically Removed, Because of the apostasy of Jerusalem, which had become the great madam of the whorehouse of religion, God had to take out the temple to display dramatically that the tent no longer had standing, that the old covenant no longer had standing, that it had entered into obsolescence and obsoleteness. This is a symbolic representation for the present time, the writer says, and he's speaking to the present time of the initial readers, those who are reading this and hearing this sermon called Hebrews. And so he said this is a symbolic representation for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are being offered. The present tense is used here, meaning if you'll notice, in Jerusalem, these are still being offered by the priests. This is ongoing all the time. Every day they're repeating these offerings. What's he doing? He's warning these people they better not go to Jerusalem and join this trend, this mega-trend of apostates, because something's going to happen in A.D. 70. In fact, in right about now, August A.D. 70, in which there's going to be the siege of Jerusalem in beginning with A.D. 66, which would be followed by the abomination of desolation, which is the armies of Rome taking out Judea and the cities of Judea and finally Jerusalem and leveling that temple in a judgment of fire. So better not be there when that happens is what the writer's saying. And this also gels with Jesus' warning that when they see the abomination of desolation, he says to his disciples in Matthew 24, get out of Dodge. I've been watching too much gun smoke. But get out of Jerusalem. Head for the hills, literally, the rocks of Petra, because the abomination of desolation is an army holding standards where Caesar and Nike or Nike is proclaimed to be God and goddess. And they're going to destroy the temple and destroy hundreds of thousands of lives, enslaving hundreds of thousands of others, throwing their bodies into Gehenna, after slaughtering them Gehenna which is the ditch around Jerusalem as we've seen so there's a great warning here in the AD 70 trajectory and again so let's look at it again verse 9 this is a symbolic representation for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being offered which are what not able to completely cleanse, teleao, that means completely cleanse, the conscience of the worshiper, having to do only with foods and drinks and various ritual washings. This correlates with Romans fourteen, seventeen, where Paul said the kingdom of God does not exist in the realm of foods and drinks and legalism in terms of dietary legalism. And ...various kinds of ritual washings, regulations involving the body. The body has to do with the circle of being called the earthly... ...and the conscience connects with the heavenly circle of being... ...from which the kingdom of the heavens commences. The heavens and the earth are both creatures of God... ...and not in any way equal to God. But heavens, the heavens is where God commences his work toward the earth in order to join earth and heaven. One day, the heavens will become earthly in their glory, and the earth will become heavenly in its glory. And that will be the blending of the heavens and the earth in Jesus Christ in Ephesians 1.10. So having to do with foods and drinks and various ritual washings, regulations involving the body, that's the exterior, Imposed until the time of the correction. The time of the correction is when Jesus said it is finished. And that institutes the time of the restoration of all things. Now, there are four levels of individual human consciousness. And a fifth one that's collective. That's where brotherly love continues in Hebrews 13.1. We're heading up, up that way too. The first level is the level of Experience. That's where a lot of people live and stay for their whole lives. It's auditory, it's visual, it's tactile sensation. That's the first level of human consciousness. The second level is that of wonder leading to inquiry and inquiry to insight or understanding. That's when in even normal child development, a child begins to ask questions about her surroundings and maybe gets answers from parents or from experience or from Seeing things by touching things that might hurt, for example, on the level on that level there are questions related to quid sit in the Latin. What is it? That's when, as Piaget studied children, and his study on children and child development is probably still the best there is, and Piaget understood that there was a time of immediacy where a person as a child, the infant, has a world of immediacy. Everything immediately relates to the child. It's a world of immediacy. As they grow, it becomes a world mediated by meaning. They begin to question their environment and find answers. They become a cascade of questions, as parents know, as teachers know, and they begin to get answers. So they live in a world mediated by meaning. We live in the kingdom of God, which is a world mediated by the meaning of Jesus Christ, the reality of Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom that commences with the heavens, called the kingdom of heaven. And it's also called the kingdom of God. And I have much more to say on that subject, and I hope, well, the Lord might have to give me life and breath in order to develop that doctrine. Incidentally, if you happen to have Karl Barth's books, Called Church Dogmatics. There is in volume three a whole section called The Kingdom of Heaven, which is worth reading and rereading and rereading. So, on the second level of consciousness, what is it? Answers are then discovered. On the second level, the individual leaves the world of immediacy, just how this world affects me. You know, some people never grow out of that world of immediacy. Everything is always about I, me, and mine, according to George Harrison's song, I, me, mine. Everything is about me, how it affects me, how it affects me and my self-absorbed little realm here. And so some people never grow out of that, and so they live their whole lives infantile. They are infants. And you actually stare at them and wonder about how can someone be so self-absorbed as to have only this world of immediacy and how everything affects only I, me, and mine. It's a terrible place to be and it is the root of all psychological unbalance and imbalances. And so... What happens in the second realm of consciousness, a person begins to ask, not how does this relate to me, but how does this relate to this? How does this out here relate to this out here? That's when you begin to ask objective questions, and you begin to realize there's a world bigger than your circle. There's a world bigger than you. There are people out there that are suffering. There are people out there that can relate to you. There are others that won't and can't and you love them anyways, that kind of a thing. And so in the third level of consciousness becomes a level of reflection. And that leads to judgments or conclusions in the mind, mental conclusions. On that level, the question sit" is asked. The Latin is simply, is that really true? You've asked questions. You've come to answers. Now you ask, is that really true? You reflect. Are the answers to our what is it? True and real. Are the answers we've come to, are they true and are they real? I asked about the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the answer came back, yes. But then I spent about 10 years saying, is it true? Is it real? And then I started to ask, is it of value? And if it is of value, then I must deliberate on it and then make my life accord with it. Make my life and living accord with that reality. And that's when transformation happens so on the level of reflection we ask is that really true we gather evidence to the point where we can say with relative certitude yes that's true we've asked every possible relevant question that can be asked in our reflection and there's no more questions that remain so we come to an unconditioned conclusion of certitude yes that's true that's when we begin to proclaim things with dogmatism and with dogmatic reality. That's when martyrs die because of their certitude. They don't back off and they don't back up when they're questioned under threat. That's when martyrs, martyrs reach the third level, the level of reflection. They come to certitude and they say, yes, the answer to their question, yes, that's true. Or we can say, and I've said this many times, no, that was mistaken, and I can prove it by such and such evidence. And so I can answer the question, no, that's not true. And so I develop more. As those who revere God and his word, we base our reflection on the scriptures. And with indispensable help by the Holy Spirit, we come to sound judgments. For we have not received a spirit of fear or intimidation, but of what? Love, power, and sound judgment. We've received the capability of sound judgment right within the design of our image-bearing souls. And so we have the Holy Spirit guiding us to sound judgments and conclusions about truth and reality. In short, we hopefully come to that reality which is in accord with sound doctrine in Titus 2.1. The ultimate judgment that we come to is that reality itself and truth itself has incarnate meaning. The ultimate truth is an incarnate reality, and his name is Jesus. The fourth level of consciousness is that of deliberation. Now we're getting to the conscience. It's a level of deliberation and decision. We've come to conclusions about things that are important. We now deliberate and it leads to action, to specific acts. Daniel 1.8 is a perfect example. Daniel came to a conclusion, and he deliberated in his heart about whether or not to partake of the king's menu, and he decided he would not, that he would not be conformed to the cosmos, and that he took on his own diet, and at the end of the time, he and those who followed his menu became stronger, more robust, and healthier than others. The conscience is often referred to as of a peace with the heart. Conscience is the fourth level of human consciousness where we deliberate and we ask questions like is this of such value that I should decide how my life will be lived in connection with it? Is this of value? Does this have value or does it have only apparent value? Only is, is it only apparently good? A lot of people fall for what's apparently good because it's called good by people who can't discern good from evil, which is happening today. There are children who are trained by their parents who can't discern between profanity and normal language, so the children go out speaking profanity like it's normal, and they have to be told by their teacher, you know, we don't use that word when we're talking about social studies. It has nothing to do with the F-word used eight times in a sentence. You see, people can't even discern what's profane and common from what is acceptable with God, and that's happened in our culture. And so the fourth level of consciousness is where the conscience is. When the conscience is seared, it's cauterized like with a hot iron, a branding iron, people can't even discern between good and evil. So when you say things like evil, they say, oh, there's no such thing as evil. They can't relate to evil because they've blown away in their own conscience the standard by which good and evil are discerned and distinguished. They don't even have that anymore. Can God save them? Of course he can. Can God rebuild the conscience? Of course he can. Does he? Yes. Has he? Yes. He's done it in my case in many areas. Yes, he does. The conscience is often referred to as a piece, as of a piece with the heart or as part of the heart. Sometimes it's even a synonym for the heart, which is the centermost, innermost part of the being. For example, we have evil heart in Hebrews 3.12. Evil conscience in Hebrews 10.22. Now, an evil conscience isn't when the conscience becomes evil itself, but when the conscience becomes evilly affected by guilt, by unresolved guilt through past failures or sins, because the blood of Christ has not yet entered into the consciousness to purify the conscience from dead works which are usually works that you try to do because you have an evilly affected conscience. So you got to do good works that you think are pleasing to God, but they're not because they're just works you're doing to get rid of the guilt in your conscience. And that's all kinds of so-called good works happen because of that. Someone who is wealthy may have attained their wealth by greed, by avarice, by stomping all over other people. And then, so they want to buy a Cadillac for someone who's looking in a window. They want to buy them a house, or they want to buy Mama a house. And they want to do all these wonderful things to assuage their conscience, which got that wealth through avarice and through stealing and thievery and destroying other people's lives. See, that's not good. Those are dead works, incidentally. They don't get rewarded. And so we have... Also, the good or the clear or the completed conscience in Hebrews 10, to 2. We have good conscience. Paul said, I have served God with good conscience in Acts 23, 1, Agathos conscience. We have the good heart, Luke eight fifteen, A good and honest heart receives the word of God. It's like the soil, good soil that receives the seed and brings forth 30, 60, and 100 fold. Both of these, both conscience and heart, are used in one of the key verses of all the Bible, 1 Timothy 1, 1.5. The goal of instruction, that's the goal of all Bible teaching, is love from a purified heart, katharos kardia, and a good conscience, and non-hypocritical faith. If the heart is evilly affected by unbelief, then it's inattentive. The person becomes inattentive, unintelligent, and unreasonable. The conscience becomes indolent or lazy and irresponsible. So the effect is the cooling off of the fervency of love. So you can compare Matthew twenty-four, twelve with First Timothy one five and first Peter one twenty-two. Because on the fourth level of human consciousness. Two things happen. The conscience is cleansed and the love of God is poured out by the Holy Spirit. Their blood of Christ, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Grace come together again on the fourth level of the consciousness. By the power of the Spirit and a cleansed conscience by the blood of Christ, we begin to serve the living God with effect, with power, and with an effect that affects world occurrence, which affects you want to use the word our community, which affects the family, which affects people in your periphery into the positive good. And so this fourth level is only superseded by a fifth level, and that's the level of intersubjectivity. That's the level where it's, we're aware of others. We have an intersubjectivity, that is an awareness with other persons, and that's where love is demonstrated toward one another. If you love one another as I have loved you, then the world will know. That I've called you. The world will know that you're my disciples. And the world will know that the Father has sent me into the world through this. Once there's a cleansing of the conscience and the serving of the living God, then the intersubjectivity called the Christian community becomes effective. And that's when salt has savor and the light is not covered by a bushel and, well, there's a positive effect. Every message that a preacher, that a pastor preaches is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, is it not? Well, that's Hebrews also. The whole aim is to practically prepare us to serve the living God with effect, with positive effect, with positive impact. And so if the heart is evilly affected by unbelief in Hebrews 3.1 or by guilt in Hebrews 10.22, we have a problem. And there has to be a purification of the conscience. It doesn't happen through confession. It happens through acknowledgement of the truth of the value of the blood of Jesus Christ, which value reaches to the interior. The heavenly and the interior are connected in Hebrews. Usually we think of heaven in a spatial analogy as above as opposed to below. And Jesus even used this. He said to the Pharisees and to his enemies, I'm from above and you're from below. You're from beneath. I'm coming at you commencing from heaven. You're coming at me from the demonic, from the lower level, from the beneath. And... He said, you're going to die on account of your sin of not believing in me as Messiah. Why? Because you guys are going to go to Jerusalem and die under the abomination of desolation because you're going to keep on offering sacrifices that have no power to in any way cleanse your conscience because you've refused me and the once and for all sacrifice that I am and I am your Messiah. You've refused me so you're going to die in your sin or account of your unbelief. He wasn't saying you're going to die and go to hell. He said you're going to die on account of your sin in A.D. 70, your whole generation, unless you, as he said in Luke 13, repent, come to a change of thinking, come to a change of mind about who I am. And so here again, the purifying blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit are seen to be cooperative in the human conscience to make the Christian saint an effective priest to God the Father. The center of the Hebrews homily literally, literally, and literarily, as well as thematically, begins right here. The Lamb is at its heart, namely Jesus the Messiah, and the blood has pooled in its greatest way right here. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world... He who is the place of expiation and the person of propitiation. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's all people in all places over all time. Now let's look at Hebrews 9 again, verse 11, which is the very dead, now make it living center. Right here, I'm reading the living center of Hebrews, our homily doesn't mean that we're only halfway through this homily, incidentally, because we've gone already further into Hebrews and exegeted a lot of it, but you've been asleep. It's been, you see, God did a great job on Adam when he was sleeping. That's when he performed the rib surgery. And so lots of times you're not even aware of it while you're being taught, but you're having this passage exegeted. In fact, I could quit today and say, I'm done with the exegesis of Hebrews. We've already gone up through Hebrews 13, 25 in our exegesis. But don't worry, I'm still not done. Verse 11, now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things. We've noticed this before, and it means two things. Good things that have already come and good things that are coming. He is the bringer, the mediator, the archpriest of two kinds of things. One, things that have already come, the sum of which is the situation of mankind radically changed from enmity to friendship with God. And that happened, that that change, that radical universal alteration, not only for humanity but for the entire created order, happened in the Messiah's first coming when God in Christ reconciled the world to himself and when Jesus was made to be sin that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. So he's the archpriest of good things that have come that's the alteration of the human and creational situation and secondly things that are coming both of those are indicated by the Greek text here as we've shown before and that things that are coming is the alteration of the human and creational condition which happens with Jesus third coming you say third coming what's that mean obviously you didn't hear last Wednesday's message so the alteration of the condition is coming The greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is not of this creation, meaning not of this circle of being or existence, a sphere of creation called the earthly. He entered once and for all through the sanctuary, not by the blood of of goats and calves. Now, it can be argued that when Jesus did this, it's not after his death, when he raised and went spatially through the heavens and then went into this holy of holies in heaven, literally. He did all this in his death. He did all this at the moment of his death on the cross, at the moment of the pouring out of his blood in, in the new covenant. This all happened effectively right then. It can be argued. You say, I'm only asking the question, can it be argued? And said, yes, so far, but now i got to say, is it really? And I might say, no. So I'm warning you. But here it says... He entered once and for all. This archpriest, this goes back to 9-7, the blood trail is being followed. Not without blood, like the priests of the Old Testament, like only the archpriest once a year. This archpriest alone, one died for all and all died. This archpriest alone went into the Holy of Holies, for all the sanctuary not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained that word is really an unusual word here. It's from the word herisco. And it's the eras middle participle form of the verb herisco, and it means to find after search. It means to discover after exploration. It means to it also means to find and to obtain at great cost or at the payment of an inestimable, in this case, price. Having obtained then, or we could say found or discovered, eternal redemption. Not for a year, but forever. Now the word herisco, and I'm going to just be brief on this, has the, is deployed here in verse 12, and it has the same sense of discovery after a search that's found in two parables. One, Matthew thirteen forty four, the man who goes and sells all that he has to buy a pearl of great price which he had found. Horisco, Matthew thirteen forty six. And of the man who had who went and found treasure hidden in a field, then in great joy went and sold everything he owned and bought that field, Matthew thirteen forty four. Notice that in Matthew 13, 38, the parable by which all parables will be understood says that the field is the world. The treasure in the field is all of humanity in the world. And the man is not any old man. It's the man, Christ Jesus, who sells all that he has to buy or redeem that treasure in the field. All that he has to buy that pearl. The church is related to the pearl of great price. The word "pearl" in the Greek is "margaritas," and so some people think that the church's name, the bride's name, is Margaret. I don't know. Maybe it is. I don't. I, that's J. Vernon McGee, though, and he, being dead, still speaketh. These parables are sometimes interpreted as indicating the personal obligation. Of individuals to fulfill a full commitment of all that they are and all that they have in order to obtain entry into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But this is what I mean by Christological concentration. A Christological interpretation tells a different story. The man in both cases is the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between the one God and all of humanity, who gave himself as the price to secure our redemption, our eternal redemption. He gave himself as the price to purchase all of humanity and all of creation from slavery to sin and corruption. The only reasonable response to a radical promeity of God in which one died for all and all died is, as we've seen before already, is to no longer live orientated to ourselves. But orientated to him who died, that is, him who on our behalf died for us and gave us the utmost, gave his utmost and went to the uttermost extreme of his love for us, who sold all that he had to buy us. For years I read the book called My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. It's a wonderful little devotional, the daily devotional. I recently gave it to Cole, my grandson, because I think it's worth reading. But the real thing that we have to be occupied with is not my utmost for his highest, but God's utmost for my highest. God required of himself the utmost price, gave his only son to redeem us. Christ gave himself and gave all that he had. On the cross, we, have, we fail to recognize that God became past, that he became utterly past to himself. That he, God, on the cross, paid and required of himself the uttermost in order to save us to the uttermost. So more than my utmost for his highest, and before I can even get to my utmost for his highest, I have, to rest, I have to require of myself that I know that he gave his utmost for my highest, his utmost price secured, so that we could be elevated into the highest places of heavens. where we are seated in the heavens. That's not important to me. That I'm seated in the heavens is not important to me. What is important to me is that I'm seated in the heavens in Christ Jesus. That's what's important. The blood of Christ that gives eternal purifying effect to the new covenant is also superior to the blood of animals, of bulls and goats, because it is not only the blood of a man, not even only the blood of a sinless man, it is the blood of the divine man, Christ Jesus, and therefore the blood of God. An inestimable price was paid. The blood of Christ speaks of the superiority of Jesus' person as the place in which the removal of the sin of the world and the wrath of God against sin occurred and became effective for all people in all times and places and for all time and times. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, Jesus said. Now, let's close with this. Look at, let's jump over the great analogy that we're going to deal with Wednesday. I know we are. I'm so sure we are that I have. You see, I'm so sure of the resurrection because it's already happened. I'm so sure of mine because mine has already happened in Jesus Christ. I'm so sure I'm going to talk about death and the blood of Jesus Christ and the equation of the death of the testator with the blood of the covenant. I'm so sure that I'm going to preach on it Wednesday that I've already preached on it Wednesday. For Wednesday, that is. Hebrews 9 Remember, Jesus said, instituting the new covenant, this is my blood of the covenant. Some translations add new covenant. Luke 2220 adds it deliberately anyway, so if it's in Matthew or not. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, the poured out blood and the sprinkled blood have to be distinguished, but we'll do that another time. Moses also said something like that. If you look at verse 19 of chapter 9, Moses took the blood, still on the blood trail here, he took the blood of what? Calves and goats. In the brackets it says goats, I think that's the best translation. So Hebrews 9.14 said, how much more shall the blood of Christ, how much more than what? If the blood of bulls and goats serve to purify The external part of man in a ritual. How much more shall the blood of Messiah purify the conscience, the interior part? The one who proceeded from heaven, the second man from heaven, who brought a kingdom that commenced from heaven. He who came down from heaven, the second man from heaven, he fulfilled a sacrifice from the heavens that purified the heavens greater than the sacrifice of bulls and goats and so really you have to jump ahead to find out what the interpretation of 914 is moses took the blood of calves and he goats with water You'll find out this Wednesday. I know you will. Blood and water came from the side of Jesus Christ. That was his death certificate, the death of the testator, proven. And therefore the inheritance given and is able to be given to all mankind. And so, now if the blood of he goats and Moses, rather, took the blood of calves and he goats with water and with an applicator of scarlet wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the scroll, he sprinkled the law with blood, thank God. Because man's breaking of the covenant was covered by the redeeming act of Jesus Christ. And then he says... While saying, in verse 20, what did he say when he sprinkled the people with blood? This, the law itself and all the people, not some of them, all of them, in Exodus 24, 6. While saying, this is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant which God ordained for you. What covenant? The first one. The old one. 9-1. One. The first the 1st one Jesus, the new Moses, says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many, and he refers to many as an understatement, a humble understatement of the Son of Man, meaning all the people, meaning all people of all places of all times. This is my blood of the new covenant, the better covenant, the everlasting covenant, poured out for the many. All humanity. Moses said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God ordained for you. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, the greater covenant. So now verse 13 makes all the more sense of 9, chapter 9, 13. Now, if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people, that's ceremonially polluted, served to sanctify for the purification of the body. And it did. You've been sprinkled with this blood, now you can rejoin the fellowship of, the, of Israel. You're not excluded, you're not going to die, you're, you're ceremonially purified. It worked, it worked. Then how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, without saying, Lamb, there's the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world. Purify your conscience, purify our conscience literally, from dead works, so that we can serve the living God. To la theu zonti, the living God. That means we can serve as the new priests of the new covenant. Now so there's value in this case, looking Hebrews 919 9, 19 to twenty to get a clear interpretation of Hebrews nine, thirteen and fourteen. Now, because the conscience is on the fourth level of human consciousness where there occurs deliberation leading to decision and decision to action, it's through the purification of the conscience from dead works that enables persons to effectively serve the living God. When the level of consciousness called the conscience is purified, then right decisions can be made which distinguishes between evil and good over what is evil and not only what is over good over evil but of what is only apparently good and we need that desperately today to discern between what is only apparently good or merely ceremonially good or good in the view of people with defiled consciences those who call good and good evil and evil good And that's what's happening today in Isaiah 520, rather than what is good in reality, what is good in God's eyes, what is truly good. So you might get less than excited where everybody else around you is excited about something they call good when in your mind and in your conscience and in your deliberation, you've reached the place through the word and through the spirit that you say, no, I don't quite see that as being really good. I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. I'm not buying that. And I say that about, every, about something new every single day. I love what Shohei Otani said the other day, and it blew away everybody's workout ideas. That he's the best ball player that ever lived, incidentally, not just now, but ever in history. And they asked him through an interpreter, uh, Shohei, what do you do to prepare? And he said, I sleep a lot. And I'll, you know, I can hear, see all these people, well, don't you do 200 squats and 500 bench presses and get up at 5 in the morning and work out till 9 and then do this and run? And then they said to him, well, well do you run a lot? And he goes, nah, I don't run. I don't run. And so I like that training program. <laughs> Sleep a lot and never run and become the best ball player in history. Now, let's, let's just close. I'm sorry. Even today, the Christian community generally appreciates Jesus as the Lamb of God. They generally appreciate that. We all do. But the jury's still out as to whether we've truly appreciated that the Lamb and the great archpriest are one, that the offer of the definitive sacrifice is also the offering, that the definitive sacrifice of this Lamb took away the sin of the cosmos, of the whole world. That this offering priest and this offered lamb are one. So the judge is the judged. The judge of all was judged for all. Does the Christian community, in general, recognize Jesus in his universally saving significance? And do we realize the universally atoning impact of his offering in our conscience? Our commentary on Hebrews is addressing that question and hopefully helping just a little bit. That's all I expect, is to help just a little bit, to remedy the lack of recognition of the infinite value and universality of Jesus' saving significance. In any case, it's on this fourth level of human consciousness, in that all-significant compartment of our inner being, of our heart called the conscience, that we, the Christian community, have to deliberate That's what it means to me to study and to come to consider just how good and how precious is the blood of the Messiah, which purifies our conscience, to qualify us to be effective priests to God the Father, effectively representing ourselves, our loved ones, and indeed the world of humanity with efficacious intercessory prayer. All of Hebrews is aimed at this goal all of Hebrews, is aimed at this goal in Hebrews 9.14, that we would serve the living God, that we would live by serving and that we would serve by living, that we would live by serving in the newness of the Holy Spirit and that we would serve by living in the newness of life. And, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study the Word And I know, Father, there are times when I perhaps am too long-winded as a long-winded preacher, but there is so much that you've given me to say and so little time to say it. And so I thank you for this opportunity for an audience that's respectful of your word, an audience that is desirous of the knowledge of your Son. May we go forth from here with the consciousness of forgiveness of our sins. May we go forth from here with the awareness that the reconciliation of the world has occurred in your son. And may we go forth from here, following after peace with all people and for ourselves, for the sanctification that only comes about through a purified conscience and through the recognition that you required the utmost of yourself for our benefit and for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, stand and.